0: So, the title of today's message is, How Can God Be Good? And uh, like I said before, we're walking through questions that you guys have had, topics that you guys would like me to cover throughout the year, and this is one that actually came up very recently. I didn't have it on the calendar for today, but there's enough going on in our world right now. I thought this would be a good time to deal with this issue. Um, I think I spoke on this maybe three years ago, but this is a, with COVID time, uh, you know, it's just the last two years have been irrelevant anyway, so we just kind of jump right back in. Um, but with all that's going on in the world, you got everything going on in Ukraine. you got everything going on in our nation. You know, you, you see what's happening. The world is going through some very, very difficult times. And one of the questions that comes up regularly when I'm trying to, min- to minister to people is, how can God be good? With everything going on, and you see this, especially on college campuses, this is like a cry of the liberals. How can God be good? You believe in a God who claims to be good. Look at the world. The world isn't good. How can God be good? And as Christians, we should have answers to these questions. We should be able to, to deal with these issues because there are answers. You know, if you think about as believers, we should be striving to live according to God's word. Can we all agree on that? Yeah. Now, here's another question. Where are you in that process? In that process for yourself, in your own development and understanding of God's word... And then applying that understanding to your life. Where do you feel you are in that process? Are you in a good place? You know, I'm making I'm making good forward motion. I'm learning. I'm growing. Or is it like, ah, eh, my kid knows more. They have more of the Bible memorized. Thanks, Christy. Nice job. Played Bible Trivial Pursuit with my six-year-old, and they wiped the floor with me. It's not a good thing, right? Very few people that I know are where they believe they should be. Uh, and that's okay, as long as you're aware of where you are, you can you can course correct. But if you're just completely unaware of where you are, you're, you're like you're like Dad driving the family on a vacation without a map. You know, your wife's got the map; she knows where, where what's going. She also knows you're completely lost, and she also knows she's not going to say anything because you won't listen anyway. You know, you at least have to admit, okay, fine, I'm lost enough to ask my wife for directions. <laughs> you know, there's some GPSs now, especially for your phone. You can program the voice for a specific person's voice. Ladies, I find this to be an opportunity that you should probably take advantage of. (laughs) I believe I said turn around. Um, (laughs) I remember once my dad was driving the family to Maine from New York, and he he took a seriously wrong turn. Seriously wrong turn. And some farmer who had a really good sense of humor painted, your wife was right, turn around, on a barn. Just, and they, they, well, you can fill in the blanks. You know, that's, uh, it's, it's pretty good. So scripture reminds us over and over again that we are supposed to be instruments that God chose to bring his message of redemption and salvation to the world. We are those instruments. And whether you like it or not, just being a believer makes you a minister. Uh, and this, this can be difficult for a lot of people to understand. I am a minister by vocation. You are a minister by by calling, whether you like it or not, you represent the character and nature of God to the world. A lot of people in your life, you are the only Jesus they're going to see. Now, which Jesus are they going to see? You know, well, I don't know. I met Jesus once. Curse is like a sailor. <laughs> you know, I I didn't know Jesus could put put away that many beers. Man, that was amazing. What Jesus are you going to show them? A Jesus of patience and kindness. Um, or a Jesus that looks just like the world around him. It's important that we understand this. But at the same time, we need to understand that the world around us is not too eager to accept this message that we're supposed to bring. This message of love and and, uh, uh, and salvation, forgiveness of sin. The world's not too interested in embracing that. And this is probably because as often as we can honestly say God loves you just the way you are, which is true... We also know that God's not willing to leave you the way that you are. God loves you the way you are, but you are not acceptable to God the way you are. This is a difficult concept for some people to get. What do you mean God loves me but doesn't accept me? Yeah, God loves you, but he doesn't accept you. His goal is to change you into what you were actually supposed to be. What our original created intent was. See, because not only is God loving, God is also righteous. And we need to understand that. It's the righteousness of God that condemns us. God has standards. He has standards for good. He has standards for bad. He tells us what's right and he tells us what's wrong. And when you tell people this, that God has, stand, think about this, God, the all-powerful God, the ruler of the universe, has standards for good and bad, right and wrong, but at the same time, he will let people do amazingly evil things, and he won't lift a finger to stop them. This messes with people. How can God be good? How can God judge me according to a set of standards that he himself won't enforce on earth? Anyone ever heard that? I hear it pretty regularly. Think about this. Here's this little snapshot of the 20th century. Remember, we're in the 21st. In the 20th century, 130 to 142 million wartime casualties happened just in that century. That is more than every other recorded world uh, uh, war combined in history. Just in the 20th century. There were more deaths there than at any other time in history combined. There are 650,000 abortions every year in the United States. Since Roe versus Wade, there have been over 60 million abortions in the U.S. Globally, since 1981, 1,647,038,100 as of Friday morning. I checked the abortion, ca- there's an abortion clock that you can actually see online. It'll tell you the number of abortions around the world. Globally, 25% of all pregnancies end in abortion. Globally. In 2018, 9.6 million people died from some form of cancer around the world. 795 million people in the world live in in what is considered starvation situations. Malnutrition is the cause of 45% of deaths in children under 5 years old, which equals 3.1 million children a year. And today, 44% of marriages end in divorce. That is a 251% increase from the 60s, and that is just in our country. How are we supposed to go out and tell others about a God who loves them so much that he would die for them, but he allows all this to happen? Anyone who's paying attention is going to have objections to this. God loves you and he wants to save you, (laughs) really. But he lets kids get cancer. This is, this is the God you want me to serve. This is the God of your church that you want me to go to and you want me to sing to and you want me to pray to so that he can, he can be in my life and do apparently nothing. I've had this conversation over and over and over again. We live in a very dark world and there are unbelievable atrocities that happen regularly. And although these types of questions are frustrating, as representatives of the king of kings, do we have answers? Do we have answers? And the question that I'm going to answer today is the one that keeps coming back up, and it's how could I believe in a God that would allow such so much pain and suffering in the world? How could I believe in that kind of God? Now listen to this. 1 Peter 3, 13 through 16, reads like this. Says, now who will want to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you suffer for doing what is right, God will reward you. He will reward you for it. So don't worry or be afraid of their threats. Instead, you must worship Christ as Lord of your life. And if someone asks about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. But do this with gentleness and, uh, gentleness and a respectful way. Keep your conscience clear that uh, then if people speak against you, they will be ashamed when they see what a good life you live because you belong to Christ. The word here that's translated, always be ready to explain it, is the Greek word apologia. And this word means to give a defense, but not a physical defense. You don't find someone who disagrees you about God and punch him in the nose. That's not what he's talking about. Okay. This is actually a legal defense. So when someone brings an accusation against you, or more poignantly to, against God, we bring a legal defense. Now a legal defense isn't just, you're wrong, you're stupid and ugly. A legal defense is a reasoned, thought out defense. It's there to refute unjust accusations. You know, if you go, if you're in court and people brought up accusations against you, do you want someone to bring a good defense or a bad defense? You want a good defense because you want these unjust accusations taken care of. Now, as Christians, we should be bringing a defense against the unjust, untrue allegations towards God. Here are some ones that... We see pretty regularly, how can God be good and allow kids to get cancer? How about this one? How could the Bible be God's word when it was written by men? These are honest questions. These aren't people being mean. They're not being combative. These are honest questions that deserve honest answers. But unfortunately, we find a lot of people in our lives that fall back on old Christian platitudes. You guys want to help me out? What's the one that I can't stand the most? Just trust in Jesus. Okay, that's like being in the middle of a battle and yelling, quick, get to the bomb shelter, and they don't know where it is. Now, the expression is true. Yes, get into the bomb shelter, but you know what would be more helpful? Follow me to the bomb shelter. Sometimes you yell that hoping they know you can follow them. Trusting in Jesus is a good thing, and it's a right thing, but it's extremely unhelpful for someone in the middle of a tragedy. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Look at me like that, you bald little man. Be taller than you in a week, buddy. (laughs) Probably. Here's another one that I absolutely love to hate. You should go talk to my pastor. When you're, you know, older than, say, 16 and you've been a Christian for a long time and you tell someone who's going through difficult times in their life, you should go talk to my pastor. What you're saying is, I have no understanding of my own faith. I have no answers for you, but I should have. But there are other people who are more committed to this than I am and you should probably go talk to them. That's actually what you're saying. I call this vampire Christianity. You want all the benefits of the blood... None of the responsibility that comes with it. Right? Fire insurance. I don't want to go to hell, but I don't want to go to church either. (laughs) This is a problem. This is a problem, and it doesn't work. Because at some point in time, the truth of your life is going to catch you. Now, this Greek word apologia is where we get our word apologetics. Apologetics is, in my opinion, a skill set that every Christian needs to develop in their life. Every Christian needs to develop some degree of an apologetic understanding, and I hope you'll understand why by, uh, by the time we're done today. Now, this is not being a smarty smart pants. You don't need to know everything about the Bible, but you do need to understand how to have a conversation with someone. Now, a really good book that I recommend getting is this book, Tactics. Uh, by Gregory Call. Uh, now, I think the ladies' group is going through this right now. Uh, me and the leadership read through it a, long, uh, a while ago. Um, I actually really like this. It's extremely helpful. Um, the guy is very good at what he does, and, and the book walks you through some very good processes. Um, so this is just some extra reading for you if you want to actually develop this in your life. But the idea is to learn how to logically unfold the truth to help people see where their thinking may have gone astray. So if we were to examine this question, how could I believe in a God that would allow so much pain and suffering in the world? There's a process that we want to walk through. So if I was just going to answer this question, the answer is actually really simple. How could I believe in a God that allow that would allow so much pain and suffering in the world? Well, because God didn't do any of it there. Was that helpful? Or how about this one? Don't blame God for the sins of men. It's another truth, but is it helpful? No. It sounds like a cop out. That's not what we're supposed to be bringing to people. We should be bringing them answers. So when we're looking at a question like this, the first thing we want to do is actually listen to the person. How many of you run into people that are just really good at answers, not good at listen, not not good at listening? You're trying to explain to them why you're frustrated about something and you know in their head they've already turned you off and they're just waiting for you to shut up so they can start speaking. That's not what we want to do. We want to listen to people and we don't want to just listen to what they're saying. We want to listen to what their heart is trying to say at the same time. Because what you find is most objections to Christianity are not factually based. Most of them are emotionally based. Because people actually don't understand the character and nature of God. And something has happened in their life, or that something has happened to someone who they care about, and God gets the blame because it's convenient. And a lot of time, God gets the blame that really squarely belongs to someone else and usually belongs to us for our own choices. So we want to listen. And we want to learn, before we begin to try to give them an answer, we want to try to learn to ask questions to help them explain more about where they're coming from. Just someone saying, God is evil. Look at the world. I I would just say, can you help me understand this more? Because I'm not sure, I don't see the same God that you're seeing. So can you help me understand what you're uh, what you're really what you're really talking about here can you explain this a little deeper for me you ask them questions because a lot of times you can actually help them find the flaw in their own thinking and it's a lot more powerful to lead someone to an answer than it is to feed someone an answer if you ever tried to help someone understand how to fix something it's a lot easier, it's a lot more beneficial to step back and lead them through the repair than it is to just step in and do it. Even though at the moment it's easier for the person who knows to just step in and do it, that is, an, that is not a beneficial thing to do. Any, any leader would know that. You want to grow that person's understanding, and the best way is to help them discover how to fix something. Our life is no different. Our faith is no different. So we listen. One of the things we want to ask ourselves while we're listening is, what is it that they're actually claiming or asking? What are the nuts and bolts that are underneath this issue? Now, the claim in this particular question is because because they see evil, <clears throat> because they personally see something that they have decided is evil. God can't be good. You see, because if God was good, God is all-powerful. He's supposed to be all-powerful and he's supposed to love me. If he loves me and he controls the universe, why does he allow so many bad things to happen? Why does he allow these things? Why on earth didn't a big rock fall on Putin and then none of this stuff would happen? Wouldn't that be easy? Well, what if you were going to do something dumb and God let a big rock fall on you? Is it the same there? How about this? If God is, if this is God's way of loving us, then who needs him? If this is God's way of loving us, then why do I need God? Now, one of our natural tendencies when we're faced with questions like this, difficult questions, is to just try to immediately give them the answer. And that's actually the wrong way to go about it. Direct answers to emotional questions very rarely yield results because you haven't actually walked them through any kind of healing in the process. You've just given them a quick answer to something that doesn't have a quick answer to it. So what I try to teach is this process called the don't answer answer strategy, and I did not make this up, um, and it actually comes from our Bible. Comes from Proverbs 26, 4 and 5, and it reads like this, says, Don't answer the foolish arguments of fools, because that's what fools do, they have foolish arguments, or you will become as foolish as they are. Next verse. Be sure to answer the foolish arguments of fools, or they will become wise in their own estimation. Really? Doesn't this sound like a contradiction? This sounds like circular reasoning. This sounds like God just had a, you know, had a mini stroke or something, and he doesn't know what he's doing here. But that's actually not what he's doing. The idea here is to, basically what they're saying here is try to avoid answering foolish arguments using foolish reasoning. People will bring foolish arguments to you. Don't answer those arguments with foolish reasoning. Basically meaning don't use their standards to bring an answer. Don't answer on their terms. Can you imagine trying to answer a little kid who's convinced there's a monster under their bed on their terms? You're right. You're probably going to die tonight. Put your head down by the bed. Ooh, sounds hungry. I would throw a sandwich under there or something. Better yet, go tell your mom to get some of those cookies that I like and I'm going to leave the room. You come in and feed it. Meanwhile, you get to the other side of the bed and you just lay in there. you can't do that. When you know somebody has wrong thinking, you cannot answer based on their thinking. You have to change the process. So the first thing that we do is we don't answer the fool. So we don't answer on their terms. So in an argument like this, I might answer it in basically this way. First, I don't think it's right to declare God guilty for the evil evil actions of other individuals. God is not coming down from heaven and killing soldiers. He is not performing abortions, and he doesn't reach inside someone and give them cancer. However, God does allow us to do these things. So I think the better question is, why does God allow mankind to commit all sorts of evil? You see, we're still addressing the same topic, but what I've done is removed the fog from the discussion. People want to just throw blame on God, like God is the one actually doing these things. God is not doing these things. I've had questions pointed to me like, why did God kill my baby? He didn't. That was biology. That wasn't God. God didn't reach inside you and murder your child. This is, what was this four or five years ago, Gail? You know who you actually were. You actually were in the conversation. This is not what happens. It's 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 horrible. But it's, God is not the one who did this. So you have to remove the difficulty from the situation. You have to remove the just just the um, uh, just the blame game, just tossing it out, and you have to get back to the actual questions. Why does God allow? these things to happen. That's actually where the core of the discussion is. So what I've done is I've not answered the question based on that person's thinking. And I've reset the question so that I can answer it honestly. Now we're not being argumentative at this point, but we are letting them know we're not on the same page. So we reframe the question Like I said before, very few people who argue against the teachings of Scripture have logical, well-thought-out arguments against this. They're almost always emotional arguments. I had a friend in high school who died of cancer. I can't believe in God. My friend or my relative had 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 this disease and we prayed for them every day for a year and they still died or they're still sick or they still happen i can't believe in a god who would allow this you see what i'm doing this is so common in our world there's churches around the world praying for ukraine and the russian forces still move in how can god let this happen The goal in this discussion is not to try to make that person feel dumb. And it's actually not to win the argument. When you're having a conversation with someone on topics like this, your goal is not to win the day. Your goal is to open their mind to a different level of thinking. Usually that does win the day. But if you go into this thinking, I'm going to get them. I'm going to clear that. I am totally going to destroy this. You've already lost. You've got to go in. Caring about that person and trusting that God will finish the process if he so desires. So we don't answer the fool according to their own reasoning. But now we have to answer the fool. We've laid a foundation, so now we need to come to the actual answer part. This is where your personal knowledge and understanding of the things of God come into play. And you either have an understanding of the character and nature of God or you don't. You can't make someone know who God is, how God lives, how God works. They have to go on that journey themselves. You can direct them in the path and you can grow with them in their understanding, but they actually have to take it in. You ever worked with someone who's been on the job for decades and decades and they know nothing about it? All they've done is come in every day, clock in, collect a paycheck, clock out. They couldn't fix anything. They have no answers. You know, what do you do? I push that button every time it blinks. For eight hours a day, 365 days a year. Yeah. Their mind can't go beyond that. That should never be the description of any of our Christianity. Should never, we should never be able to be put into a box like this. One of the things I like to ask people who have been in the church for a lot of years is, what have you learned over the years? What have you learned about God over the years? Can you track that? Somebody say, well, yeah, I've, lo- um, hmm. I went to foundations class and really I just learned about the denomination. Um, I got baptized, but that's, uh, you know, whatever. Um, but I've been, you know what? I've been a faithful member of the church for 20 years. Good. Good. Could you imagine paying for a gym membership for 20 years and still being 800 pounds? Did you gain anything? No, you didn't. Showing up doesn't do anything if you don't actually grow. So don't be discouraged if you don't have a high level of understanding yet. Just don't be satisfied with where you are. If you know you need to grow, find the classes, commit to the process, and grow in your understanding. You become not only more valuable to yourself, you become more valuable to God. So when we begin this process of answering the fool, when we talk about what God should and should not allow to happen, we're not actually talking about what God should or should not allow to happen. What we're really talking about is what God should and should not control. You see, as a parent, you know you can allow things to happen in your house with your kids. But it really comes down to what what number of their actions are you willing to control and what part of their actions are you not willing to control? What amount of freedom are you going to give those children as they live under your house? Under your house. Your kids should not live under your house. (laughs) They can live under your roof, but you should not make them live under your house. That's, That's bad. Just needed to clear that up in my own mind there. How much of their lives do you want to control? Now, through the course of their life, as adults, as parents themselves, how much of their lives do you want them to, do you want to control? The answer should be none. It should be none. Because if you control the action, you are also responsible for the outcome, aren't you? If someone does something, if you force someone into a process against their will, whether, whether it's subversive or not, it doesn't matter. If they're just executing your will, you are responsible for the outcome, not them. Our faith is no different. When we talk about what we want God to allow and what we want God to not allow, what we're saying is, God, you should control all of this, but none of this. I want all of my freedom here, but I want you to take care of all this. Do you understand that that doesn't work? Because God is not going to take up the responsibility for sin in your life. He doesn't walk for you. He walks with you. You think about the great men and women of God. The scripture says they walked with God. They walked with God. God didn't control their lives. He led them. What does Jesus say to his followers? Follow me. He didn't say, watch this watch as I wave it back and forth. You're getting very theological. It's not what he's going to do. He is not going to force you to do anything. This is hard for some people to get because your life is exactly where you brought it. The issues in your life are the ones you created mostly. If your life is where you want, if you think you, you, if your life is successful, that's great. That means you've done what needed to be done to get there. And if it's not, guess, guess whose fault that is. God did not make you poor. God did not make you rich. He's simply walking with you in the process. God did not make you sick. He didn't keep you well. He's walking you through the process. If I get up on the church and I jump off and I yell, I'm flying like the angels. For about a tenth of a second, I'm going to be airborne. And then at some point in time, I'm going to hit what used to be snow and is now ice. Do you think God is just going to be like, oh, let him float down like a feather? No, I love Twinkies. I don't fall like a feather in anything. I'm sure I could sink in the Dead Sea. Some of you will get that joke. That doesn't mean that God is causing bad things to happen in my life. So at what point in life should God take us over and force us to do what he wants? Here's the problem with that kind of thinking. Does God make a drunk get in his car? Does he? Because if God wants it to happen, it's going to happen, right? That's a lie Christians love to tell themselves. If God wants it to happen, it's going to happen. How about this? Does God make the abortion doctor go to work? Because if that, re- if that thinking is right, then that has- an answer has to be Yes. But we all know it's not. How about this one? Does God make you say kind things to your spouse? Come through the door, cannot believe in us, and uh, you're the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. (laughs) No, you look incredibly thin in that. (laughs) None of my clothes make me look fat. I cause all of my clothes pain. That's the, that's the thing. <laughs> Quite a few shirts that used to be my friend. Now we don't speak. How about this one? Does God make you help those in need? You see, because if God is not going to help you love people, then God is also not going to stop you from hating people. Do you understand what I'm saying? When we think about a God of love, the question is, what does it mean to love and to be loved? What does it mean to love and to be loved? Can love be forced? Can you force someone to love you? No. Can it be controlled? No, we, we know that. You can make someone comply with what you think is love. Controlling men do this. Uh, controlling women do this too, by the way. If you love me, I'll have this kind of house. If you love me, we'll have this many vacations. If you love me, you'll let me dress this way. You, you, you see how this, this manipulation thing works? That's not love. That's compliance. I've talked about this before. We have two golden retrievers at home, Archie and Satchel. Archie loves unconditionally. Satchel complies when the electronically assisted discipline collar is attached. Okay? The lady who taught us to use that collar, it has a hundred settings on it. It's very, very small increments. She's like, I've never seen a dog have to get past 30. <laughs> We're past 30. Okay? And he still just looks at you like, hit it again. <laughs> that all you got, Chubby? You're like, "Mm, yeah. (laughs) No, they do not make child versions of that particular device. (laughs) If the goal with God is real, intimate, lasting love, not preordained, controlled compliance, then we have to understand something very, very important. if God frees us to love unconditionally, then he has to free us to hate unconditionally. You cannot have unlimited one side and limited other side. You can't. Because the moment you put a limit on one side, you restrict the other. Love And hate, good and bad, are opposites. They only go as far as they both can go. So God wants us to love him unconditionally, willingly, without bounds. That means he gives us the right to hate unconditionally, without bounds. It doesn't mean he likes it. It doesn't mean he wants it. It doesn't mean he desires it. But he desires love. And he knows that we cannot love him if we don't have the right to hate him. You can't love your spouse if you don't have the right to hate your spouse. And you can't be a loving leader if you don't have the right to be an awful leader. They have to exist on both sides. Because as soon as God stops one, he takes responsibility for the outcome. Because if you let people hate this much, why didn't you back that off? Because now all of a sudden the little bit of hate that he allows all of a sudden becomes too much for someone. You shouldn't even allow that! It doesn't work. That's compliance. That's robots. God does not want us in eternity with him forced to give some sort of heartless love and devotion to him that really doesn't mean anything. This is why Christianity is so hard. It is hard. Because you see such horribleness going on in the world around you, and you know there's something better. But we have to bring that in a way that reaches people here. It's the changed life and the changed heart of a believer that makes all the difference. The reason why God allows these things to happen is because He is good. So that covers choice, but what about sickness? What about things like COVID and cancer? Why does God allow these things to exist? God did not make cancer. God did not make COVID. That was made in a lab in China. <laughs> Facebook feed just dropped off. <laughs> God did not create sickness. God did not create old age. God did not create illness. He didn't create cancer. He didn't create create dementia. He didn't create heart conditions. You know what created all of those things? Sin. We live in a broken world. We live in a fallen world. We live in a place where genetic flaws are handed down from generation to generation to generation. That is not God's fault God didn't create those things. When uh, I I I I can't remember who the person was. I've had uh, several of these conversations in the last couple of weeks, um, where someone says, "I don't know what God is doing, what trying to teach me in this, allowing this to happen." Yes, I do. I know exactly who that was, and my response was pretty quick. God didn't cause this. God didn't make this happen. Scripture says that God works all things for his good, not that God causes horrible things so that then he can look good on the other side. Hey, why do you got all those (laughs) band-aids? That's why. I'm here to stitch you up. You just beat me up. Yep, but now I'm your hero. God is not doing that. God walks with us in this broken world, in this broken life, in these broken bodies. See, I know for a fact that cancer cells feed off of sugar. I know that because medical science has proven that. If you have cancer and you're eating sugar, you're f- you're adding fuel to the fire, folks. You have to starve that thing. But you know what? Okay, history of different different cancers in my family. Um, I eat a lot of questionable things. <laughs> you might not be able to tell because I'm wearing a dark sweater. Against a dark background. Because I'm not stupid. I've seen myself in bright clothes. Hey, happening. I remember once I wore khaki pants and a white shirt. I look like a demented ice cream cone. I will never do that again. But you know what? i I, I know that I don't eat the way that I should to maintain a healthy body. So when my body begins to fail, do I get to blame God because He's uncaring and unloving? Because I'm a pastor. You should not allow the effects of my decisions to affect me because I'm, well, I'm me. I think what God would say is, you want to be healthy? Eat a carrot. Not candy corn. Denise. So I'm driving down the road, and I'm doing 95 miles an hour through Copenhagen. Okay, I've never done this, but just so you understand. And all of a sudden, I see Christmas lights behind me. And I pull over. Is God unfair that I get a ticket and my insurance rates go up? No, that is the result of my actions. I've cut myself on saws. I've cut myself with razor blades. I remember getting my hand stuck in a mixer once. I mean, that was just—it was just. It was just it, I worked in kitchens. It's just stupid. Guess guess whose fault that was? Mine. But God allowed it to happen, right? And he usually works all that stuff out for good. When I hurt my neck a few years ago, I spent a year hooked on painkillers. And I was ticked off at God about that. I spent almost a year not being able to sleep in my bed because I couldn't lay flat because of the way the nerve damage was. I had to sleep on a couch kind of propped up on the side. I was mad at God because that happened. You know what I learned over that time period? I hurt my neck because I didn't take care of myself. I got hooked on painkillers because I was taking them. That's what they do. That is the nature of an opiate. So when I went through all of that, but you know what God did? God taught me mercy for people going through pain. People who deal with long term persistent pain, I didn't understand that. And people who deal with addiction, I didn't understand that. I thought I did. Now I do. Because I know what I would have done had my pain medication been cut off. I know where I would have been. It wouldn't have been a good place. See, God didn't cause any of it, but he walked through it with me. God does not make the pain, but he will use the pain for his good. You know why God allows that to happen? Because he's good. He's a good God and he loves you. He wants to walk this thing out through you, but he can't with you, but he can't walk it for you.